Hey, this is Neil Mackay, your host of a Vietnam podcast. Now, before we get started on this episode, I wanted to share with you about one of my favorite affiliate partners, and that is Fiverr. I've been using Fiverr for years for everything from ordering YouTube thumbnails to keyword research, writing podcast articles, even to Canva designs and thumbnails and more. So whether you're a budding entrepreneur, a podcaster, or anyone in between, Fiverr has got you covered. It really is the go-to platform if you want to find freelancers offering a massive range of services to help you on any project. Maybe you need a stunning new logo or just a short animation, whatever you need, you can find it on Fiverr. What I love the most is how easy Fiverr makes it to connect with talented freelancers from around the world, all at prices that will fit whatever your budget is. Plus, with Fiverr's secure payment system, you can trust that your transactions are safe and secure. No dodgy people you meet on Facebook groups that disappear with your money and never give you what you want. What, that's only happened to me? As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you use the link and at no extra cost to you. As an affiliate partner, I will get a small commission if you click my link and you buy something, all at no extra cost to you. And best of all, you will be directly supporting the making of this podcast that you're listening to for free, but it is not free to make. So why we head over to somewhere that you've probably never been before. It's called the show notes. So whatever app you're listening in, if it's Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anything at all, head to the show notes, click on my special link, and then you can browse thousands of gigs ready to help you with your next project. And now let's dive into today's episode. Let's go. Thank you for listening to 7 Million Bikes, a Vietnam podcast. My name is Neil Mackay, and I've been the host of this podcast since 2019 when we started as a Saigon podcast. We set out to share the stories of people that lived in Saigon because it's such a crazy, energetic city, and there were so many interesting people here. As the podcast grew, we started to interview more and more people from across the world that all have a connection to and a love for Vietnam. So we hope if you're a regular listener, you've enjoyed these stories, and if you're new to the podcast, then enjoy this episode, which is from the archives while we take a break after season seven. If you are new, then make sure you subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications for new episodes and check us out on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and even TikTok. Enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. So my first guest of season two is a local comedian. She's from Hanoi, but now Saigon has been her home for nearly six years now. My guest is Vumin Tu. As a matter of fact, I had to attend two schools at once. One's like a normal primary school and one's a music school. And especially maybe just me, but I noticed that especially Vietnamese girls, they don't feel really comfortable to just like laugh out loud like a hyena or whatever is it because they don't want to stand out because um, that's just how they are taught normally like uh, maybe women should not laugh too loud in public 
But once they pass a certain age, then they have this auntie laugh, which is like really terrorizing. <laughs> Scary, but like. Become a member of the 7 Million Bikes community and you'll get free tickets to our events, free 7 Million Bikes face masks, episodes a day early, behind the scenes content and invites to special events for community members. The link is in the show description, so check it out and join today. Thank you so much to our existing community members. We look forward to seeing you again soon. This season, we've gifted sponsorship of a Vietnam podcast to two amazing charities close to our hearts, the Blue Dragon Children's Foundation in the North and Saigon Children's Charity in the South. Please check out the links in the description to learn more about these amazing organizations and donate if you can. Enjoy the episode and thanks for listening. So my first guest of season two is a local comedian. She's from Hanoi, but now Saigon has been her home for nearly six years now. My guest is Vumin2. How are you, Vumin2? Hi, I'm fine. <laughs> I'm going to stop calling you Vumin2. Your name's Tu. Yeah, you don't call me Vumin2. It sounds like I've done something wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I don't know. Is that my name? is uh, a guy's name, so I don't want to be called by that too often. Uh, normally, delivery guy would call me up and be like, hey, Yang, you have a package delivered. And then, oh, like, sometimes they even write on the packaging, like, to Mr. Phu Ming Du. I say, no. <laughs> what part of your name is a guy's name, then? The whole combination. Two is a unisex name, but, like, if you put the whole thing, it's supposed to be unisex, but I feel like a lot of guys has taken that name. So now it's um, by, con- you know, like, consensually, it's just a guy's name. And in fact, if you go on Google and Google my name, the the result usually comes up as a red, some red piece. Some? <laughs> some I don't red like piece. to Google my name. I don't encourage people to Google my name. So what two is telling you? on a podcast that you're listening to, probably sitting next to Google, don't Google Vumin2. Absolutely don't do that. Yeah. Obviously now everybody's doing that. Then you've said that. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So when you do find said person, it's not the same person I'm interviewing today. (laughs) She is a female and she's a very funny comedian as well. So, So you're from Hanoi originally, right? Yeah. What was it like growing up in Hanoi then? Uh, growing up in Hanoi is in, interesting in its own way. I mean, uh, when I was there, the city has not really been open to uh, outside influence yet. So it is uh, still, it was still a pretty small, nice capital. Feel, still feel very colonial in a way because we still have a lot of building from that time. And most of the business ran by the government, so it's not profit-focused like nowadays. So you could go to a cinema that is totally empty and then spend your whole day there watching, like, pirated movie. Because <laughs> at that time, you know, nothing is copyrighted yet. And it was beautiful, like, I could walk around the Huan Kim Lake the whole day and has not been flooded by tourists or expats yet. So everything was just quiet. 
and nice in like a nice pretty small town. However, besides that, it was also very stressful because uh, unlike in Saigon, my parents let their kids have certain freedom in Hanoi. Our parents were very strict, so we were made to go to school most of the time. As a matter of fact, I had to attend two schools at once. One's like a normal primary school and one's a music school. Yeah. In the evening? In uh, During lunchtime. Wow. I took a break from my main school, go to a piano class in a music school, and then went back to my normal school to continue after class. But it, it was typical for Hanok kids. I feel like maybe because my family was a little bit more privileged compared to others, so that's why we could afford education like that. But I mean, even for a less privileged family, they also try to push their kids to learn a lot of things at once. And we talked about this in season one with Daniel, who his parents were from the north as yeah. well. And you were talking about how strict they are and yeah. pressure. And so do you think parents are stricter in the north than in the south? Uh, yeah, definitely. Parents are way stricter in the north because I, I think uh, they believe having proper education, you know, on this certified degree and stuff like that uh, would help you a lot in your career later on. And uh, learning skills like music, sport, whatever, would benefit in the long run. So, so they just hope that uh, their children can do better than themselves. They themselves in the future. So, uh, yeah, I think so. The, the parents in the north are very aspirational, whereas parents in the south, I feel like they uh, care for their children in a more day-to-day basis. It's like, have you had enough of sleep? Have you eaten enough? Or have you had like enough free time to hang out with your friends and stuff like that? Because so being an English teacher previously, I feel like you can see the amount of pressure that gets put on children here in Saigon, and yeah. I've never worked in Hanoi. Yeah. So I can't imagine that parents here are less, put less pressure on their kids than in the North, because I already think that they put already put a lot of pressure yeah. on. So if they're, they're stricter in the North, that must be an incredible amount of pressure they put on the children. Yes, I mean, in the South, uh, parents are still strict, but I feel like kids here get more time to hang, hang out with friends, like in general. Yeah. And then they have more um, extracurricular activities in school, which is just a difference in education system between two regions. So I noticed in the South, they have more clubs like you. After, after school now, you can go for dance class, judo class, swimming, club, sports center, and stuff like that. Whereas in the North, it's mostly focused on the academy. So, I mean, still, it's still considered time hanging out with your friends, but maybe you get to do less fun stuff. I guess. Interesting. Yeah. And what are some of the other big differences then between the North and the South? Generally speaking, Generally speaking I, I think it's the general attitude of people in those two different regions. Like in the north, people are more reserved. I, say, um, 
I think in the North, people care so much about keeping faith, you know, that phrase we usually say. So in any situation they want to appear, their best, even uh, when they have a guest in the house, even if they don't like that person, they try their best to treat the guest nicely. Whereas in the South, people are more straightforward, more direct. And then, so if you have a guest who you don't like so much, maybe they can take that guest outside to eat. <laughs> Instead of, you know, like forcing themselves to cook a nice meal at home for the guests, like what people usually do in the North. So yeah, in the South, people are more open-minded, more direct. In the North, people are more reserved, but also like once you make it into their inner circle, so called, they usually keep you as friends for life. Like their loyalty is really, really high. I would say. Yeah. Interesting. And so you mentioned saving face, and we talked about this before with Daniel. What yeah. What's your definition of saving face? What does this phrase mean to you? Uh, I think it's to appear the least vulnerable as possible because uh, I think northern people are very private and uh, because this is funny because the thing uh, this is one of the thing I think the architectural structure affect our social interaction so in the, the north we have this compound called which means like a compound which usually have like three different buildings linked to each other, make it into the square and in the middle of it, there's a playground. So what happened is that people usually hang out in that playground and then they start talking to each other, gossiping and stuff like that. And then uh, neighbor would know about each other's life in detail. So like once you mess up a little bit, then the whole fucking compound know about that. That's why it's really important for you to appear as best as you can. To just avoid being gossiped yeah, about? Yeah, just to avoid being gossiped about. Because is it because people know it's so prevalent that if you step out of line, you do anything wrong, that everyone's going to hear about yeah, it? Yeah, everyone's going to hear about it. And so is that what makes it different then to, you know, coming from a Western culture? Because I think we, in the West, we still like to save face. Like, we still like to cup, like put on a good appearance. We don't like to yeah. do things in the wrong way, but... We, I don't think we just we don't have that same concept or a, a strongly like held belief in like saving face. You know, I think we we can tolerate messing up or maybe being talked to. I don't yeah. know. Is that, is that what the difference is? I always struggle to understand exactly what saving face is. Yeah, it is about be you want to be accepted as a normal member of a group, so you try to appear as average as possible. You know to avoid conflict or to avoid gossip or any uh, negative connotation about yourself. And then I also have to say that uh, although it seems like a bad thing, but it's actually good because then you have some sort of uh, reference to know if you, uh, which one can potentially be a bad company, which one is a good one. Because the thing is that once you live in such a condensed space, it's important to maintain a general safety for everyone. 
So like even on the gossipy ladies, right? They seems to be so petty. But the fact is that because they uh, spend a lot of time sitting around, they actually keep the area safe. You know, like they would watch out every house when uh, people are away for work. Yeah. So yeah, it's good. I mean, it's not too bad. <laughs> it has a trade off always. Yeah, no, yeah, that's true. And you mentioned so Hanoi, obviously. Hoang Kim Lake is yeah. very touristy now, like the old yeah. quarter as well. And I love it up there when I go up there. Really nice to walk around. It's I find it very different to Saigon, a very different feel. What What's your thoughts though? Like, because you've seen that change. Like you just mentioned, like for you growing up, it was well, it would have just been like an old village or, or town. Whereas now it's just tourists everywhere. Like, what's your thoughts on that? My thought on that, first of all, I uh, really appreciate the fact that because we have a lot of tourists there, the food culture has been improved by a lot. I remember when I was 10 years old, there was only like two places that sold pizzas at that time in the entire Hanoi. And then now when I come back, I, I came back to Hanoi just a month ago. And holy hell, there's so many good foods over there. Like, I can spend the whole day eating without being bored. So yeah, that's a good thing that about having a lot of tourists. And But then also, the, the downside of that is traffic, obviously, and the price of things in general. It has become more expensive uh, compared to probably five years ago even and uh, yeah but but I mean this is one thing I I like to point out a lot of foreigners say that Hanok people are very rude I have heard this yeah. I haven't I haven't actually experienced it myself but I, I've heard people say yeah, that yeah you know, people are saying that like some people say maybe a little bit xenophobic okay yeah but I think because Hanok people are more reserved, so they are more careful of who they are really letting eat. So a lot of foreigners in the north wouldn't be accepted as expats until they have learned certain amount of Vietnamese, for example. Then um, the local would treat them obviously way nicer. Whereas in the south, it's not really a problem. Interesting. Yeah, interesting, right? So, yeah, so I feel like, yeah, even though there's a lot of tourists or expats in the Hanoi, but due to our general attitude to, you know, like very selective about who we are welcoming, it, the impact has not been too great in any sense which I like about it <laughs> as a logo because like normally we don't want change. Normally we want to keep this ideal memory of the place we grow up. Yeah. So that's, that's just my thought. <laughs> and Vietnam, and obviously Saigon is becoming such a like foodie culture, like, like and it, Vietnam is known worldwide for Vietnamese food. Yeah. But now like Saigon, especially just so many cuisines here so many amazing restaurants it's growing every day like it's pretty cool like just how much good food you can get here that's not Vietnamese food yeah 
I mean, in Saigon, is I think even there are even more food than in Ano. And I love it because, yeah, also the food here. Of, because we have like bigger population mm. and uh, a lot of expats coming from their own country being chef enough, they bring over their food in the most authentic way. So I really love the food here in Saigon. But the problem is to travel out to eat it. Traveling to get yeah, it. Yeah, to travel <laughs> to get it is an issue. And then, yeah, I think, yeah, once people live in Saigon, they need to get used to the distance, I guess. It's such yeah. a big city. And I think it's easy to forget that sometimes it's a massive massive city yeah i never been to a southern district here ever like district 11 and 12 i actually never been there yeah like district 10 8 out that way uh-huh. like i never you never been. yeah, yeah I mean, but maybe they... once or twice but yeah there's no reason to go much i don't know what's there to be honest i mean if you know southern good food then maybe that's the reason for yeah. to go out there yeah because there's a, a jamaican place i don't know if it's new or i've just heard about it but a Jamaican place that's not far from here that I want to try. It's meant to be amazing. And then I just saw something posted about an Ethiopian restaurant as well. That I want to check that out as well. And just like, yeah, new things popping up all the time. Like just yesterday, I went to the Village Grill. I don't know if you've heard of that. It just does like burritos and burgers and stuff, but it's like amazing food. And yeah. Yeah, my Mexican friend came here and he said that he had the best Mexican food in the last three years here in Saigon. Wow. So he was like, okay, <laughs> I'm glad. <laughs> where is that from? Huh? Do you remember where that uh, District from? 2, uh, what do you call it? Uh, district Federal. Federal. Yeah, District, district Federal. Federal. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. to pronounce it that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, that is one of my favourites. That's one of the best. That's really, really good. Yeah. So... You've been in Saigon for six years. I've been here three, and I've, it's such a rapidly developing place. So I've seen it change massively in three years. What's the biggest difference that you've seen in six years? Our oh, biggest difference I've seen in six years is uh, the uh, change in uh, hanging out place. Like before, when I first came back here, right, we had a uh, really big venue for events like cargo which could host around 400 to 600 people at once observatory when it was still in a very obscure underground place so back then everything was way cheaper i'm such a cheap <laughs> i suppose anything cheap it was everything was just way cheaper and then we could hang out you know um way longer and I feel like oh maybe because I'm getting old that's why I don't hang out that late anymore but I feel like in the last six years Saigon has become more commercial in a way which is not a bad thing but also I feel like it limits certain development in the NDC yeah I mean, it comes with, it's like the, the price of development, right? Like new buildings coming in a more modern city. It's going to be, unfortunately, it's going to become more expensive. And it is already, you know, more expensive. Yeah. 
So I guess it's one of these trade-offs, right? Like we get all this new food and we get these new exactly. bars and we get these new buildings and new apartments and it's all lovely. And it's like, oh, but everything's not as cheap as it used to be. Yeah. And also the fact that a lot of it's bad because, you know, like I work mostly in the entertainment scene and, and the art scenes and most of my exposure is to those kind of scenes. So what I have seen is that like the expat, about six years ago, they were still very enthusiastic. So they came out and then displayed themselves, kind of like, hey, I have this thing, take a look at me and stuff. They, they was more excited. So, but then I think after six years, they kind of withdraw a little bit. And then now they go back to a smaller kind of uh, community instead of spreading them out throughout the whole city like before. So that's why it create this, uh, maybe I call it like a feeling that the, the scene has shrunk. The, the, the creative scene or the music? The creative scene has shrunk. But also this is an interesting thing I want to talk about because when I've been to Hanoi, probably because of the size of the city, the creative scenes is more, how to say, steadily growing over there like they I feel like people go out more for events over there than people here do also the size of city could affect that because in Hanoi like in one night you could go to three events whereas in Saigon I think the most you could go is two events at most it's an interesting point here because yeah. I put on events and it, sometimes it can be difficult to get people to come out. And I, I, no, I didn't think about the size of Saigon as being a reason why, because you know what it's like. People live in the D2 bubble, or the yeah, yeah. M bubble. People live in the D7 bubble. And so once they get home, or some people just work and live there. So it's really difficult to get them to come out. And many events are in D1, right, in the central of the, t- the city. But not many people actually live in District 1, right? So anytime you have an event there, yeah, you're asking people to leave their bubble so interesting so you're saying Hanoi because it's smaller and more concentrated is a better response interesting but see you so you, you're saying from your perspective you think the creative scene has has kind of dispersed over six years so in the three years that I've been here I feel like it's increased in Saigon I feel like because when we first got here there wasn't so much going on like stand-up comedy, for example, we can get into that. But for stand-up comedy, there was nothing happening here. When we got here three years ago, there was like one open mic night. It was Brian and Diana do shows. I don't know if you ever went to that. That was an emergency room. Oh, uh, I went, uh, when I came into the scene, they already left. Yeah, yeah. I think they left. They were, they were, they left two years ago, I think. Yeah. And so there wasn't much going on in comedy. I don't really think there was much going on in music. There was no venues, like you're saying. And it's interesting you brought up Cargo because actually Damien's going to be a guest on a future episode, and we're going to talk about Cargo and and what happened to the music scene. And so I got introduced to him through uh, a friend called Chris Dundon, and so uh, I'm really excited to 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 meet him because I, I don't know him and find out more about the music scene and why there's not as big of a music scene here as there probably should be. But yeah, you know, I find that over the three years the the, the amount of events like gender funk and the, all the comedy events and there's live music every night. I feel like there's more and more, but I, I'm, yeah, I'm not sure how, how well attended they all are. Maybe the diversity um, of the event. I mean, there, there are more events nowadays, but like, 
maybe I, I hope for more diverse, not, not to say diverse, because now we have like a lot of LGBTQ events, comedy events, but uh, I, I hope everything just, you know, everything get to flourish instead of being kept in a box for such an extended period of time. Because in the last two years, I would say the the growth seems to be stunned in a way. Yeah. Well, I've looked into this because it's come up a couple of times. So I, there's about 100,000 expats here in a city of 10 million people. So the expats make up like a tiny percentage of it. And obviously Vietnamese people absolutely come to these events. But a lot of them are, I mean, most of them are English-based a lot of people here speak English, but not everyone. They are kind of catering for almost um, expat tastes, I guess. So do you think that's what maybe stunts attendance or people attending these events? Because actually, this the, in terms of the expat community, it's a village of 100,000 people. Yeah, because whatever I talk, I refer to as in- entertainment scene. I mostly refer to the expat entertainment scene for the local entertainment, I think. They are doing well. I, um, yeah, pretty much. It's more happening. So what, I'm interested to hear this answer. What do Vietnamese people do for fun socially that I wouldn't know about, right? Because I'm sure there's so many events that are posted in Vietnamese Facebook groups or posted in Vietnamese and I have no idea about it. Is there, are there a bunch of things going on that I have no clue about because I'm clueless? I'm gonna sound like a Vietnamese hating Vietnamese. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, Vietnamese, I don't know, but like most of my friends, they like to go to pub and bar and uh, EDM club and stuff like that. I feel like because uh, Vietnamese, when we grow up, we don't have the luxury of going to uh, really happening music festival. So I feel like people are more interested in something that's noisier. So that's why you hear about all these like Vina house just hammering to your head. Uh. I, don't get me wrong, like some local club do pl- play like really good music, good hip hop, good mix, uh, good house music. But then uh, most of the time I feel like People in Vietnam, they just want a place to hang out. To, and then they haven't really paid so much attention to the quality of things yet. So if you ask what Vietnamese usually do in their free time, I would say they just want a break from thinking. And it's not like we think a lot. <laughs> so they usually go out for drink, uh, drink a lot go to loud club and then if people have their own family then maybe they would just stay at home and have good time with family for younger people I feel like um, we don't have much options for them because as I observe from my younger friends most of the time they would just go around and eat they don't really have a venue to go there and be exposed to uh, different kind of performance or or maybe even cultural event. And it's really difficult because the thing is that due to our educational system, 
we don't really have a strong uh, commonly shared cultural background. Yeah, and I think that's difficult to have some sort of uh, platform that could reach more people than compared to like other seen in different countries. I, what I think was amazing with Vietnamese people is how much they love to just socialize and talk, right? And I was making this point to a friend recently that I think us as Westerners, we need an excuse to go out. So we need to go and watch sports and stare at a screen. We need a quiz night. We need live music. We need something to, to make us go out and talk to each other, right? And drink. Whereas Vietnamese people can just sit and just talk. And the reason I realized this is because I run quiz nights. And I was trying to get more Vietnamese people to come and I had my Vietnamese friend brought all of her friends. They paid no attention to the quiz at all and just sat there and talked all night. And I wasn't mad. I was like, this, this is incredible. They don't need an excuse to like sit and hang out and have a reason to talk. They just sit there and talk. Yeah, uh, this is interesting because you bring it up. Also, I think the reason why not that many Vietnamese go to event like a, a live band museum concert is because uh, I feel like Vietnamese are not comfortable at expressing themselves, their reaction to something that's out of ordinary. Like, let's say we socialize by talking because talking is normal. It's like a, the, the simplest interaction ever. But once you put a performance there, people just don't know how to react appropriately. So that's why they prefer not to involve this alien element. So explain that a little bit more to what, what would be acting inappropriately or what would be a, an appropriate no, reaction? No, no, it, it is all according to their standard. Like when I go to watch a comedy show, for example, for you guys, it, it's no-brainer, right? You go to a comedy show, you laugh. Like the louder you laugh, the better for everyone over there. But I noticed that a lot of Vietnamese people go to comedy show and then they look like they're not sure how loud they should laugh. Yeah, is that, and is that tied into saving face or am I getting that? Sorry? Is that related to saving face or like? Yeah, kind of. It's like, and especially maybe just me, but I noticed that especially Vietnamese girls, they don't feel really comfortable to just like laugh out loud like a hyena or whatever is it because so, they don't want to stand out because um, that's just how they are taught normally like uh, maybe women should not laugh too loud in public but once they pass a certain age then they have this anti laugh which is like really terrorizing <laughs> scary but like once they are still young I think they haven't made it to the point of you know being able to express themselves carefully as they should. And that is really tied into, you know, that educational background, that cultural background, where we're not really encouraged, I guess, to to do that, right? Yeah. It's basically, to be more reserved, because in school, I'm not sure about nowadays, but back in my day, if you express yourself a little bit differently from the norm, you usually attracted really unwanted attention from teachers and sometimes even punished for just 
being loud. Let, let's say if you dye your hair, then you would have to face endless complaint from your own family member. And that's the thing you don't want. So, yeah, but then I, I feel like with the internet and all this exposure to foreign culture, I feel like people are becoming more open-minded. So I, it will take time for things to take a better tone, I guess. Yeah. So let's talk about your comedy then. So you are, I'm to you, a pretty famous comedian oh, in the Saigon scene, in the Vietnamese scene, and even maybe in Southeast Asia. I've seen you perform from, I think, near the beginning. Yeah. Like, oh, wow. Because well, when did you start? I've been here for three years and oh. you know, I'm going to show us the whole time. I started in uh, September 2017. Yeah. Yeah. So I would have been here. Yeah, so I, I've, I've seen you from the beginning. Yeah. So how did you get into comedy? How's that been as a, so not only as a female comedian, a Vietnamese female comedian, and you're doing it in your second language. Oh, interesting that you asked, because <laughs> the thing is that what happened in, in two, uh, 2017, I went through a really deep period of depression. And at that time, I didn't know it was depression, but I noticed that I couldn't communicate uh, verbally, not that I could <laughs> very well. But back then, I just totally uh, lost my ability to communicate, especially in English. I went to work trying to present my ideas and no one could get it. And my boss was like, what's wrong with you? Like, you used to be better than this. And I thought it was because I lived in Vietnam for so long that my English had become rusty. Because before this, I lived in Singapore and Malaysia for 10 years. So I got to use English more often. However, when I'm back here, then maybe I didn't get to use it that much anymore. So I was like, okay, uh, let me go and see how what I could do about this. So I went and asked my friend. Uh, who is Wile, you know, another comedian. I asked him if there's any English club I could join or Toastmaster club and stuff like that, which was tricky because my English level would just not fit into any of the available club at that time. So Wile suggested me to maybe try stand-up comedy so I could improve my public speaking and at the same time, you know, have more humor in my life to improve my situation, hopefully. And that's when I started, yeah. And was stand-up comedy something you'd always been interested in? Had you been a fan of the, the art form or was it was it at this time you decided, oh, I'm gonna give this a try? I didn't really watch that much stand-up comedy before 2017. Like before that, I only knew uh, Mitch Hesburgh and Sarah Silverman, those are the two comedians I watch. Uh, but then also not that often either. But however, I did read a lot of humor column in a magazine, like reading some Guardian, The Onion. So I, I was super into like written kind of humor. So, so once I started uh, stand-up comedy, my interest in writing humor kind of helped, yeah. So tell me about that process then. So what was the process from you deciding, okay, I'm going to do stand-up comedy to then getting on stage? How did that play out? Oh, I uh, did take a workshop and uh, it helped me 
in a way. Because before this, I was also kind of familiar with performing on stage. I took piano lesson, I took guitar lesson, and for both, I've been performed in, like, recital in big concert hall, just because our school could afford it. <laughs> so I, I was already familiar with, like, crowd. So once I uh, performed comedy, I, I think it was not something really new to me. But it was, I just need to do a little bit of adjustment, and I think... I got a hang of it. <laughs> we know you're you're very funny. So obviously, if anyone hasn't heard you, you're very raunchy. I would say very dirty, very sexual. Was that like a conscious decision? Like like so, I, I don't know you as a person, so I don't know. Do you, I don't know if that's your persona off? Is that an on stage persona, or is that that's just you in normal life? Like, yeah, tell me how did that how did that on stage kind of material? Where did that come from? Oh. So this is funny because a lot of people think that I'm very raunchy and very dirty and stuff like that. But this is what I tell JK another comedian is that people usually uh, underestimate my ability to be normal. Thing is that I was brought up in uh, by a mother who was very masculine, a very strong woman, but also very masculine in her way of thinking and dealing with things. And also I grew up with a brother. So on the time, I would uh, fluctuate between being really girly and being really boyish. So once I approach a sexual topic, I would approach it with a curious, it's almost childish, rather than some, you know, like sexy revolutionary out point of view. I think it worked out well, like people just take it whatever way they want. Like not the old men who think I'm very sexy, and then younger girls who think I'm very empowering in a way, which is nice for me. <laughs> so, was that a conscious decision? Like, uh, this is the pursuit. I want to be like this raunchy comedian. I want to tell these dirty jokes, or they just came naturally to you. I think it's also it's like I had no choice because you know I, I am doing stand up comedy. And the thing is that you need to find something relatable to the, that anyone can relate to. And my audience is such a huge mix of people coming from different countries. UK, US, you already know there's a huge difference in culture over there. A little bit of Vietnamese. And then uh, it's really difficult to find a topic that I could talk about and everyone could understand. So I resort to just toilet humor and dick jokes. Those are always work. And people say it's, 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 it's an easy topic to write about, you know? But I think if you can do it well. I was just about to say, though, easy, but you, you got to do it well, right? Like yeah. Some of my best jokes are dick jokes, and I'm like, oh, like that. should be able to come up with something better than that. But they get the biggest laughs, and they're the funny. If you see, uh, like, some, like, world-class famous comedians sometimes they for their whole special they just talk about dick and tits and genitals and still they can capture your attention for hours mm -hmm. that means they do it really well and there's no shame in doing dirty jobs of course you're gonna get um, fewer geeks 
as a matter of fact, I'm going to have to MC for a startup event. And the requirement is to clean, to do clean comedy. And I think I'm stuck. <laughs> I think I'm going to struggle. So what's been the reaction then as a Vietnamese female to your, the content of your comedy and to your performances? Because you kind of touched on it a little bit different to like an old man to a female. Because I mean, I know I've obviously seen you perform. I've been shocked some days, like especially in the beginning. It's like, what is she talking about? This is, and it's hilarious. And I've seen like the Vietnamese people in the audience, like just being like, can't believe what you're saying, you know? How has that been? I think I was just born without a filter. Like this, is, this has been an issue when my mom was still alive. She was very scared of taking me to a family gathering, you know, because I would say something very outrageous. And for my mother's side, everyone was very traditional. So sometimes I would say something and everyone would just keep quiet. And then they complained to my mom later on. But it's funny because once I moved to Saigon, which uh, I am most of my family here was on my father's side. I figured out that they also had no filter. Probably I inherited this no filter from my father's side. Like my aunt would tell her future daughter-in-law, like, don't try to go date my son, we got nothing for you. In, on the wedding day, in front of the parents-in-law. So I, I don't know, it, it's just our thing, I think it just. And so what's your family's reaction been to your comedy? Have they come to see no, you? Like, my brother tried to come to support me. Actually, like whenever I took part in a competition, he would be there to provide uh, some moral support. But I think it's more like to talk shit about me to other contestants. <laughs> but other than that, my family doesn't really know what I'm doing. And I think they have no interest to find out what I'm doing either. Yeah. But have they heard about it? They know, like, they're aware of it and, and what you're talking about? I think they are aware of it, but the thing is that they not sure what stand-up comedy is about. So in their head, they just think of me as being like a comedian in a very Vietnamese tradi traditional sense. And uh, they're just surprised because in their eyes, I I'm not funny at all. And so what is a, a traditional Vietnamese comic then? Very sla uh, slapstick, very... Uh, I feel like in order to do traditional Vietnamese comedy, you either were born with or without it. So like you have to be really vocal, really joyful, like this thing just radiate from within instead of something that you could learn and, you know, sharpen throughout the years, like English stand-up comedy. So more like a clown is, is would be like would clownish? Is that kind of clownish? Maybe like a hack and man sort of thing. Yeah, you need to be able to deliver this kind of energy. Whereas in English stand-up comedy, you if you're not that energetic, then maybe you could resort to a more like Loki or dry humor. Yeah, it's coming with some some of the funniest comics are those ones where they just are just so like yeah dour or like low key and but it's just so funny. Because I, I spoke to you once before about like I was like, could we do a show where it's comics in V like speaking in Vietnamese? And then to you you explained to me like yeah, it's just kind of like not possible, right? Uh, some people are doing it. 
Actually, I think I'm going to take part with a stand-up Vietnamese. Vietnamese stand-up comedy show next week. 14th of August, some guys are doing it in Vietnamese. And uh, because he owned the venue and he had all these logistics, so he just tried out. I heard from my friends who came to see the first show, they said that it seemed like maybe it is possible to do stand-up comedy in Vietnamese. So I'm going to check it out. But like personally for me, I still find it difficult to do it in Vietnamese. So explain them why is it difficult in Vietnamese? I think the nature of our language is just so... It's not built to be able to construct a punchline. So uh, let's say in order to establish a premise, a build up, and then the punchline in English is just gonna take you like three or four sentences, whereas in Vietnamese you would need probably five minutes. Just there's just no. Also, there's just no subtlety in Vietnamese. I feel like, like in English you can say the f word, like talking about genitals and everything, and it still do not sound that vulgar. But then in Vietnamese, it sounds like something really bad. Like, it's more bad than it is funny. That's the problem. Just yeah. isn't yeah. more difficult to be subtle on what we have innuendo and yeah, is that what it is? It make like the it make the comedian sound uh, repulsive. Really? Yeah, yeah. So you you've got. Obviously, you've got a big presence on social media. I don't know, big presence, but you're a big fan. You use, you post a lot, right? Yeah, I had a lot of free time on my hands. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder that. I'm like, how did you post I so am unemployed. So that's why. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I find it interesting, I guess, that this part of the day and the age that we live in, the social media age, not only do I know you through watching your comedy, but I know you through just seeing your social media posts because you are so frequent. And as I kind of mentioned in the beginning, I, I don't really know you outside of comedy or social media. So I see kind of your life through social media. And and you mentioned earlier you have suffered from depression. And I didn't see that through your social media posts. And I did even notice at a couple of your shows, and it was when you were posting about this, you did seem like down. And I was like, oh, I hope she's okay. Like You didn't seem like you were doing too well. Thankfully, I mean, I, I noticed a change both online and both at your shows that you just like you suddenly looked so much happier you were posting that you were doing better and so that was good to see uh, and so how are you doing with that I hope you're doing well yeah I'm doing uh, better I guess it's like uh, I've been struggling with depression I really don't want to use this word because I feel like I like depression is not part of my personality just to say so uh, I've been I feel kind of uh, embarrassed, like in the first year of doing comedy, somehow I used depression as a comedy stage. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been doing well. I feel like uh, once I get to resolve all my personal problem, my comedy, my, my comedy just take a better turn and it become more purposeful, I hope, more inspiring to other people instead of just being this one thing I put out every month because I'm just too self-absorbed. And what's the kind of support like in 
Saigon and Vietnam for, for mental health? At the moment, I would say it depends on what kind of language you're speaking. So I mean the two main languages uh, spoken here would be Vietnamese and English. For Vietnamese, I think uh, the direction is more toward the psychiatry, uh, psychiatrical treatment. So a lot of my friend uh, went for consultation for mental health in a hospital and stuff like that, and they would usually end up with a prescription, which is all right. I mean, those are own professional doctors helping you out. But I feel like, again, uh, the accessibility of information of where to go for treatment and stuff like that are not that well-known among Vietnamese community. And also there's a certain stigma for people who try to get help for their mental health in Vietnam. Whereas if you speak English, there seems to be more private facility, more easily accessible places like in District 2, there a whole bunch of centers you could go to. In District 7, you can book appointment with a, a private therapist. So there's uh, definitely more options, easier options for people who speak English. And then there are also a Facebook group that offer help, like you could message them so that they could tell you where to go to look for help, I'll link you up with a professional whom they are cooperating to run the page. What's the name of the page for anyone that oh, might want to access that? Saigon used, I mean, for the expat group, there used to be a group called Saigon Support Group. They are not active at the moment, but still they can provide you with uh, information if you need it. And then I think for Vietnamese, it's the group called The Beautiful Mind. And is that in written in English or written? Yeah, it is uh, written in English. But like the whole page is in Vietnamese, so you could just go there to uh, message people. And then uh, I think the page is run by people who have uh, like a professional degree in the field. Oh, cool. So, yeah. So there is support out there. So, so you would, to summarize, you would say like in Vietnamese, they just likely give you a prescription. Yeah. Like if you go to hospital and stuff like that, like you don't like local, in local hospital, you don't have the luxury of uh, having a therapist who keep track of you. Uh, you just go there and like on, like, uh, on a appointment and then see random doctor until like maybe you're so severely sick, then maybe they assign a doctor to you personally. But whereas in a center, English speaking center, more likely there's a certain therapist that would be specifically assigned to you and keep track of your progress. Yeah. So it's been good to see that um, you're in a better place. Mm. And I've noticed that in your performances and on your social media, what helped you get to the better place? I think being uh, more aware of options to help myself out of the dire situation. Because before this, very self-absorbed, kind of like, because I've been through a really difficult time 
My mom passed away. I had to move out to live alone by myself. I lost her job. I tried to get back to working, but also I didn't feel well uh, physically and mentally. So again, like a lot of things on my plate, I couldn't take care of it. And uh, I think my brain was just overload. And also I didn't have any outlet to release only sort of frustration on this build up negative energy. But recently I got more into uh, fitness. I got into dancing. I dance more often. So physically uh, speaking, I got to be more active. And it's a mind body thing. Like once your body get more active, your mind get clearer like there's more clarity to your thinking, which have a lot with dealing with depression. Now, I would say it's not going to totally remove your symptom of depression once why those symptoms still show up. But at least you have this clarity to be aware that, okay, I'm not feeling well. I need to get help now before this becomes too bad and getting out of hand. Awesome. So what advice would you give to anybody who maybe is listening and maybe feeling something similar? I think the best advice I could get is to um, never afraid to ask for help because that would be the first step to get out of the difficult situation. You need to uh, remember that no one could survive by themselves. Like maybe you're, you are very self-reliant, maybe you're very independent, but uh, only up to a point, then you're going to have to ask for help. And there's no shame about it. Like people are willing to help you. It's funny because that once I got um, really, really bad, even stranger, is like high school friend I haven't talked to for seven years suddenly reach out to me after they read my Facebook post. I only, because I don't know who's going to be there to help me. So that's why I put things on Facebook kind of like, hey, I'm not in a good place, but I don't know who can help me. So this is just, you know, like an um, invitation. And then suddenly like people, you know, strangers, someone who never talked to me in real life or someone I haven't talked to for years suddenly reach out and help me. So yeah, like once you're you're running into problems, just ask for help. And you, you would be surprised where those help come from. That's awesome. Good advice. Do you feel like you're a trailblazer or a role model for, for other like Vietnamese comics or, or Vietnamese girls, women? Uh, no. Because <laughs> there's not many Vietnamese comics, female Vietnamese comics. And especially not, you've been pretty successful. You've won competitions, you've toured. I feel like I just have the right combination of element to be able to afford doing it. Because financially, mentally, culturally, I am just equipped to do it. Like, so I, I wouldn't say like, oh, Vietnamese female are not doing comedy because they are not that brave or anything. Like, no, they, they, they are like a lot of female who are stronger, smarter than me, but maybe because they have better things to do. 
So that's why. Um, so in any way, I'm. I, I don't think I'm a role model for anyone. I'm just maybe an example of. Okay, there's an option out here. If you wanna try, then you can try it. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's a you know, trailblazer. So let's move on to the questions that I'm gonna ask at the end of every episode. We've got new questions. From, that's the, the big difference between season one and season two. We have new questions. All right. I feel like I missed the trick in season one not asking this question because the name of this podcast is 7 Million Bikes because there are over 7 million bikes in Saigon registered. In, in Saigon only. Oh, my God. I thought it's a whole country. No, just no, in no, Saigon. No, no, no. In Saigon, exactly. I think it's like 7.5 million. 12 million people. Yeah. 7 million bikes. Yeah, that makes sense. So, and then someone has asked me, like, what are you going to do when it's over 8 million bikes? I said, well, I'm not going to change the name of the podcast. So that says the name now. So what kind of bike do you drive? Do you drive a bike? Yeah, I do drive a bike. My bike is Noza. It's like a very cheap and light scooter for entry-level scooter for any ladies out there who are too weak to maneuver the bike by herself. And what do you, how do you deal with Saigon traffic? Just try to be as thin as possible. So be, before this, when uh, I drive somewhere, I need a headphone to listen to music and stuff like that. But I realize that in the long run, that actually make me more frustrated than I should have been. So now when I'm stuck in the traffic, I would just zone out or talk to myself. Or go over my material in my head. Yeah, I, and then I figure out just, you know, by getting very within yourself, time kind of pass a little bit faster. Because I, I think one of the biggest miracles ever is the lack of road rage in Vietnam and in Saigon. Because, you know, road rage is such a big thing in the West for like minor things. Here, like, it, it, it's just mind blowing what happens on the roads. Nobody cares. I think that's why Buddhism kind of takes up here. <laughs> Is that, do you think that's a Buddhist influence? Yeah, I think it's a Buddhist influence. Like, what can you do? You just have to accept it. It's mm. not like if you become angrier, then the traffic gonna move faster. Yeah. Interesting. Now, if you know, if people are listening that, that are lived, have lived in Saigon or live in Saigon, they will know that you sometimes see some very strange things on a bay. What is the oddest thing you've seen on a bike? There are two oddest things I've seen on a bike. Like around my the area I live in, there was a mannequin manufacturer. So sometimes I would see like, especially at night, this is very creepy where people transport like a torso or a head or a body part. Like one time I saw an arm on a street. And I was freaked out and said, holy fuck, someone else was on the street. And then as it turned out, it was just, you know, the delivery man just dropped an arm there. And it looked really horrible at night. <laughs> and also a box of heads and stuff like that. Yeah, it's not. Funny you say that because it wasn't on a bike, but my wife and I were going down the, the road on our bike. And there was a guy walking with a mannequin and he just had like the torso and we were freaked out as well. We were like, what's that? And then it was like, oh, it's just a mannequin. <laughs> yeah. 
And then what's the second one? The second one is that uh, I think there's a local theater near my place as well. So uh, once in a while, I see people dress up in uh, like uh, ancient clothes. And because we own the, you know, like flamboyant hairdo of the ancient character, they couldn't wear the helmet. So it's just like time traveling. You see these like really old, uh, like Mandarin, you know, officer f- kind of person riding a motorbike. <laughs> We've come with with uh, a weapon like a spear or whatever, going through the traffic. It's just like it's very poetic, you know. I thought you were going to say with a mannequin. Oh yeah, <laughs> that would be fun. All right, so you've you <laughs> this question is almost redundant because you've mentioned you're unemployed. Oh oh. oh. Correction, freelancing. Freelancing, okay, yeah. freelancing, okay. So you have 24 hours off, what do you do? If I have 24 hours off, I would definitely uh, watch something on Netflix. For like, I like the docu-series there, so um, probably watch Netflix for four hours. More than that is not healthy. What do you watch? What's your favorite show right now? What uh, you the Family. Is about this conspiracy. You should watch it yourself. Oh. I like any sort of uh, conspiracy uh, theory documentary. Yeah, yeah, I mean, I'm into that. I've yeah. been into that. I've kind of gone away from it because I got too too far into it. Yeah, I mean, and now like, I have to balance. just take yeah, a step yeah. away from it. What what the family? What's the family? Oh, it's about how Christian affect the politics in America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. All right, I'll look that up. So four hours of Netflix. Yeah, four hours of Netflix. And then after that, probably uh, order some food from outside. I love just eating food in my own home. Of course, like everyone does. I don't think much. I'm like a really boring person and spend the rest of the day sleeping, I guess. Just like biscuits. So yeah, just like biscuits. Probably hear biscuits maybe snoring throughout the episode as always, but she's an angel. She's just sleeping here quietly. Or maybe I go out for coffee. It's always good to like have coffee sitting by a river or any kind of uh, body of water and then enjoy your drink. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, so if you had the next week to explore Vietnam, where would you go? I probably love to go to go up to the north again because I love this place like Chanam Ninh Bình. Uh, I can always go back there and just, you know, uh, rent a bike and just a bicycle to cycle around. That would be amazing. Other than that, maybe I would love to go to the mountain area, like Haza. Have you been before? Yeah, I've been there once before. Uh, it was such a amazing trip where we got caught uh, in... Like, if you... Have you been to Haza before? Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, like if you go back a little bit late, then it's just on fog around and you couldn't see anything. Yeah. We were really unlucky. We got really bad weather for the first two days. Um, it was just raining the whole time. It was cold and yeah, foggy as well. It was horrible, but but still like unbelievably beautiful. Luckily for the last two days, it cleared up. A funny story with that, Hazang, I um, took my phone out to look up a map or something like that. We went up the hill and I went to get my phone out to take a picture and it wasn't in my pocket. I was like, I dropped it. So I went back to where I last had it. We scouring the road the whole time, couldn't find it at all. So we get on, like, you know, find my phone. 
on my wife's phone. Yeah. And we can see that it's moved and it's down the valley. So we went up like the hill and it was in the valley. So we literally went door to door on the bikes. Dogs, like we were terrified and we we're just like, like we can't speak Vietnamese. We we're just like, ding pwai, ding pwai. Like I probably don't even understand what we're saying. One guy was like kind of tried to help us but couldn't help us. And we were just about to give up when this woman obviously understood what we were saying and like pointed. Yeah. Oh, and we text the phone saying like, if you have my phone, we text it from my wife's phone saying, if you have my phone, we'll give you 500,000. Like just like it was ringing. We were trying to call it. They were answering. Eventually we found it and it was just like two women with babies, two men, and they had my phone. I was like, oh my goodness, amazing. I was like, and they wouldn't give me back without giving them 500,000. I even tried to negotiate and like I can do numbers in Vietnamese. So I was trying to be like, you know, I'll, I'll give you 100,000, 200, wouldn't take less than 500,000. And they literally were like holding it hostage, like holding it away from me and wouldn't even let me get it. But they, they gave it to me. I gave them the money. I was like, right, whatever, you know, it's like just over $20, get my phone back. We sat down and had tea with them. <laughs> we were in this like valley in Hazang. And it's just this like little basic wooden kind of house. Yeah, we got pictures with them. We sat down, we had tea, and then yeah. we just went on our way. And I was like, it's a cool story. <laughs> we literally were going door to door in this little hamlet in the bottom of this valley, just shouting, Din Twai, Din Twai, and found my phone. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like, it's weird, right? Like, normally you would think these people are like unfriendly towards you. Like, funny because you talk about your story, because I have a story like last about two years ago. My then boyfriend and I were, you know, like taking a bike ride to Bing Thuat. And then we crashed into another bike. Like the crash was pretty horrible. And then they tr they wanted to beat up my then boyfriend because according to them, he was the reckless driver. But actually, I think it was both of our fault. It's no one's fault. And so everyone's fault. And they tried to beat him up. And... Uh, I tried to talk them out of it, like a lot of screaming in ball. I was just like, everyone calm down and like, we're going to solve this. And after checking, like, um, they are not hurt at all. And then they see that my boy, then boyfriend had some sort of injury on his arm. They offer to take us to the hospital without asking for any compensation at all. And I was like, oh, wow. Is <laughs> that? Was on the fighting was for me. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. good outcome. And then, so my last question: Do you have a hidden gem in Saigon that you can share? Gem in Saigon, I would say maybe around the neighborhood that I live in. There's a little sort of like river in District Seven, Chumson area. So it's really a nice place to sit down and have a cup of coffee, looking out to the RMIT campus from across the river, which was good because last time when uh, Bob Dylan was performing there, I got to listen to it for free. Who was playing? Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan? Yeah. Was playing at RMIT? When? A few years ago. What? Yeah. That's good. Oh, yeah. He came over here to perform, I and I got to listen for free from across the river. <laughs> that's pretty cool. Yeah, that's awesome. Maybe we'll check that out. Yeah. So, 
what's next for your comedy then? Like you've been, to, you've just done a tour with uh, J.K. Hobson, who's our first guest in season one, up in Hanoi. How was that? Yeah, it was amazing. Like we got a lot of shows in such a short period of time. I think about uh, six shows in a week. something like that, and it it was really cool to perform to a group of audience who are not familiar with us, yeah, so we we could use our own material or whatever. (laughs) Yeah, it was amazing, like, and then we got to meet a lot of uh, aspiring comedians, and uh, they give us a lot of energy to, like, continue our journey back home, so that's great. And so what's next? What next for me? I think I'm just uh, trying to write more new material, perform more frequently in uh, open mic night. Go out for more open mic night because I think it's a really good training ground. And so to do more female-centric comedy shows because I feel like uh, female do not really have that many... uh, platform to express themselves, especially in this form of entertainment. So currently, actually to that, we got to have another instrument of the Banshee show, which is our own female comedy show. So I would love to be able to take part in that show as often as I could. And also offensive job night. Uh, and then both of those shows are hosted and organized by Angie, uh, the diva. And uh, yeah, I think I'm just going to focus myself to do those two shows well. Nice. And so new material yeah. each month. Each month. Yeah. Each month. So that hopefully, uh, and yeah, talking about that, maybe I go on tour for September. I already got an invitation to do a, a show in Danam. We're going to do a new venue in Danam. And then in December, I would go back to Hue with JK to do night there as well. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you very much. It's been awesome having you on. Great having a chat with you. Lots of fun. And good luck with uh, your future health and uh, your future comedy career as well. Look forward to seeing you perform and uh, laughing because it's normally pretty funny anytime you're on stage. Thanks for listening to this episode of 7 Million Bites, a Vietnam podcast. We hope you enjoy hearing our guest stories. If you haven't already, please make sure to subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so you never miss a new episode. Thank you so much to our producer, Lewis Wright, for making sure the show sounds as good as possible for you. And also a big thanks to the 7 Million Bikes community members and everyone who supports us. Don't forget, if you haven't already, you can join the community today. The link is in the description and you'll get free event tickets, free 7 Million Bikes face mask and invites to special member events. Also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube. And I'm still ashamed to say this, TikTok. Most of all, if you can, please donate to Saigon Children's Charity or Blue Dragons Children Foundation's COVID appeals. Remember, we have six seasons of stories to share with you, so check them out if you haven't already, and we hope you can listen to future episodes too, so you can laugh, connect, and discover. Cheers.
I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you're like me, you may use your laptop at places where you have to use public Wi-Fi. This opens you up to digital snoopers. It's a massive problem. It can be your internet service provider, or you know who, looking at what you do online, or a cyber criminal trying to steal your bank passwords or credit card info, or even a hacker at the next table trying to steal your sensitive data. These days, it is vital that you keep your data safe. NordVPN keeps all of these snoopers away. It makes your internet activity private, protects you from accessing dangerous websites that are fishing for your data, and lets you enjoy your favorite content securely even while away from home. And it's easy to use, even I could use it. I've actually been using NordVPN for years now here in Vietnam, and I'm excited to be an affiliate partner with them. I've used NordVPN to watch Netflix, BBC, Disney Plus with ease, and I also know that my information and data are safe from prying eyes, whoever they may be. Join now and you'll get 68% off and three months free when you go to my link, nordvpn.com forward slash smb just again for those hard of hearing nordvpn.com forward slash smb the link is also in the show notes i know nobody checks them out but go check that out and you can get the link from wherever you are listening to this podcast as an affiliate partner it also means that i will get a small commission when you sign up but at no extra cost to you so not only will you be getting a great deal through seven million bikes you get a great vpn and you'll be supporting seven million bikes podcast Stay safe online and enjoy the shows you love. Any questions, just let me know. You know how to get in touch with me. And thanks for listening to this show. Cheers.